Grab your popcorn and snacks. Find a comfy spot, take a seat or lie down, and let me transport you to a place of fantasy, ghost stories, ancient legends, odd creatures, alien encounters, and other magical topics. You may even decide to join the conversation. From faraway lands to your own backyard, with a small dash of pixie dust, turn out the lights and open your minds. The journey is about to begin. Good evening, everybody. It's Thursday, one more day to go, and then we hit Friday and the weekend, and Christmassy things going on, holiday things. If you're not, if you're not into Christmas, my name is Charlotte. I'm going to be your host for the next hour. I'm also the owner of the California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team, based out of Sacramento, California. We are 45 strong up and down the state, which means we can get to you no matter where you're at. Okay, uh, you can find us on Facebook. You can find us on Twitter. You can find us on YouTube. You can find us on TikTok. And TikTok, we are California Haunts, all lowercase. Twitter, we are Cal Haunts. On, oh yes, Instagram. Yes, I'm on Instagram as Ender Ghosty Gal, which is all lowercase. And of course, for California Haunts on on uh, Facebook. It took me a second, I'm sorry. Um, so uh, check us out. And if you like what you see tonight, please be sure to hit that follow button and the like button. Like I see the like just went up. Awesome. Uh, same thing with uh, YouTube. If you're over, if you're watching this from YouTube tonight, um, click on that little ghost in the bottom right hand corner and that will pop up that red subscribe button and please subscribe to our videos. We've got over 450 videos sitting over there just waiting for you to take a look at them. I'm a journalist. I like to do different topics. This week's a perfect example of that. You know, we did ghosty topics and UFO we talked, you know, UFO topics this, this month or this week. And we also did a thing on Alzheimer's and dementia. So I like to do different topics. Speaking of which, tonight, our guest, Robbie Thomas, is ill, and he let me know, know, this, know this afternoon so I could prepare, so, or this morning, rather. So what we're going to do is, uh, normally on Sundays, I read from a uh, paranormal-themed book, and uh, this book, you know, it's going to take us through the holiday, through Christmas, but there's enough uh, chapters in there that I can do extra reads if, if, if something happens, like, like, like a guest gets sick, so... That's tonight's thing is we're going to be reading from the dark side of Christmas. We're going to be reading from the dark side of the holidays, or the spirit of Christmas, the dark side of the holidays. All right. So uh, let me open up the book. And uh, when we left off, you know, um, when we left off in this, the last couple times I've read this book, it's been very dark, a lot darker than I imagined. Sylvia Schultz is an excellent writer. And she's done her research to look up all these grisly things. And I mean, there's some there's Christmas stories in here, things that happen around Christmas, at Christmas, you know, winter. So it's been very interesting. You know, we started out reading about um, fictional creatures. And that that was pretty cool. So uh, the last time we read was on Sunday. And we we uh, I read about Pearl Harbor and some other events that happened, you know, during December. So we'll see where tonight takes us. Okay. So here, let me get my tablet. I'm thinking about getting a wish list, you know. As you can see, I'm running that thing at the bottom looking, looking for help with uh, the funding the show and stuff. <laughs> My tablet's like really old, okay, and uh, I'm thinking about like putting up a wish list for people, <laughs> so I can start replacing stuff. That's what I mean. It all comes out of my pocket when you know when I say that at the end of the show, every time. And this tablet's so old, I can't even update it anymore. It will not accept the new version of Jelly Bean or whatever it is that Google's using now. So, okay, let me power this thing up, and we'll get on with the read tonight. I'll read for about an hour. And then uh, again, if you like if you like the book, please hit that like button. And occasionally, I'll look up. And if you're in the chat room, I can chat back at you. But uh, yeah, I'm going to be reading. 
the good thing about tablets, though, it's like these new computer screens where you can, you know, enlarge them and stuff, you know, by hand. This is for, like, blind people, because I'm blind people. All right, so let me get this show on the road here. Again, just for the people coming in to view the show, uh, Robbie Thomas is sick. So I am going to read from our book about dark stories from the holidays. So let's see, my Kindle's coming up, and we're ready to go. Uh, sometimes, just a word of warning, I'm going to start off, but sometimes the Kindle will go dark, so I'll have to do a quick restart. Okay, so here we go. The Silver Bridge Collapse. Let me get this in this place. It's weird because i got a mic right in my eyeball here. So I'm going to kind of turn this way. The Silver Bridge, the Silver Bridge, 1,750 feet long, was a stretch of U.S. Highway 35 that connected Point Pleasant, West Virginia, with Gallipolis, Ohio. Oh, we can see where this is going. The bridge spanned the Ohio River and was a major thoroughfare between the two states. Built in 1928, the bridge was famous as an excellent engineering achievement. Hundreds of cars carrying thousands of people drove on the bridge every day from 1928, let me just, okay, 1928 until December 15, 1967. On that day, the bridge collapsed during evening rush hour traffic at 4.55 at p.m., sending 60, 60 to 70 cars plunging into the frigid waters of the Ohio River. Only five people managed to escape their submerged vehicles and swim to safety. On the Ohio side, about 250 feet of the bridge slammed into land, killing four people and injuring eight. Witnesses said the bridge listed sharply, throwing cars and trucks into the river, then collapsed with a slow-motion groan on top of the vehicles, grinding them into the mud at the bottom of the river. Forty-six people died when the Silver Bridge collapsed. Ben Cedar crossed the Silver Bridge three times on the day it collapsed. He worried every time he had to cross the bridge. It would often sway, it would often sway alarmingly, and if you got stuck in a traffic jam, there was simply nowhere to go. Cedar crossed the bridge just before 5 p.m. on December 15th. He stopped in Gallipolis, Ohio, at a, at a Kroger store and used a payphone to check in with his office. He was a Kirby salesman. As he hung up the phone, he heard other store customers talking about a bridge collapse. Bill Needham was a 27-year-old truck driver from North Carolina who was on the bridge when it fell. His, his rig sat, sank quietly to the bottom of the river. He held his breath until he could roll down the cab window. He wriggled and into the pitch black water and swam for the surface. He grabbed some floating debris and after about 15 minutes, he was pulled onto a rescue boat. He was taken to Pleasant Valley Hospital with a broken back. Needham's driving partner, Robert Toe, was not as lucky. He was in the sleeping berth at the back of the cab and had strapped himself in. Toe had just built a new home for his wife and three small children and had bought a farm. December 15, 1967, was supposed to have been his last day as a long truck driver. And the most incredible thing about the disaster? It was caused by the failure of one tiny part of the whole massive thing. At the time of the bridge's construction in 1928, people were driving Model Ts, which weighed about 1,500 pounds. Permitted truck weights in those days were around 20,000 pounds, or 20 tons. But as time went on, cars and trucks both got bigger and heavier. By 1967, the average family car weighed about 4,000 pounds, and truck limits were set to 60 tons or more. Traffic itself was heavier, with more drivers on the roads. Bumper-to-bumper -bumper traffic jams on the bridge stopped traffic flow several times a day, five days a week. This put even more stress on the structure. 
Investigators later determined that the entire bridge collapsed because of the failure of one single link, a single eye bar in a suspension chain that had a defect one-tenth of an inch deep. For readers interested in cryptids, there is an intriguing postscript to this story. Yeah, I told you this is where we were going. Some people believe that the Silver Bridge collapse of December 15, 1967 is linked to the Mothman sightings that began in the area in November. Citizens in West Virginia reported sightings of a winged humanoid in the area before the disaster. Some say the Mothman sightings foretell impending doom. Others blame the Mothman for actually causing the tragedy. Some go as far as to label it a demonic entity bent on leaving destruction and sorrow in its wake. The good folks of Point Pleasant, West Virginia, aren't taking any chances. The Mothman Festival is held every year in downtown Point Pleasant to celebrate the mysterious cryptid, whatever it is. The Crash of Flight 401. This is the book we read last Christmas as well. Eastern Airlines Flight 401 was on its way to Miami International Airport on the night of December 29, 1972. That Lockheed TriStar was making its final approach when a panel light came on in the cockpit, signaling trouble with landing gear. The pilot, Captain Robert Loft, and flight engineer, Donald Repo, weren't unduly concerned. The plane had only been in service for four months, and it was the pride of the fleet. Flight 401 was one of the most modern and technologically advanced passengers it's jets of its day. First officer, Al Albert Stockstill, had been instructed to lower the landing gear. He did so, but not all of the wheel indicator lights were green. Captain Law figured it was probably a faulty bulb. Stockstill tried to remove the bulb, while Don Repo went down into the avionics bay to check visually to see if the landing gear was down. In all this calm problem solving, none of the three men realized that the autopilot had shut off and the plane was losing altitude over the alligator-infested Everglades. Flight 401 was going 227 miles per hour when it smashed into the swamp. Many passengers were killed on impact, as was First Officer Stockstill. Don Repo and Bob Loft survived the crash. When rescue teams reached the crash site several hours later, Repo was rushed to the hospital, but died of his injuries soon afterward. Loft died at the scene of the crash before rescuers arrived. 98 passengers and crew members were killed when Flight 401 was lost. An official investigation into the accident concluded that the, that the crash was caused by pilot error. Captain Loft was an experienced pilot. He had flown the TriStar model since their introduction, and he had over 30,000 hours flight experience in the cockpit. He had a dependable crew, too, but every man of the, cock but, but every man of the cockpit crew failed to monitor the jumbo jet's altitude as they tried to fix the problem with the undercarriage. Later, it was discovered that the nose wheel was down and locked the whole time at the time of the crash. Captain Loft had been right. The problem was a faulty bulb after all. The massive whisper liner was in pieces, but some of those pieces, like the galley, were still usable. Eastern Airlines decided to salvage parts of the down plane and install them on another aircraft, including Flight 318 and Flight 903. Flight engineers arrived before the other crew members to do pre-flight checks on the plane. One day, an engineer came on board and was puzzled to see an Eastern employee already sitting in the seat. His puzzlement turned to shock when the man turned to face him and the engineer recognized Don Repo. You don't need to worry about the pre-flight. I've already done it, the dead man said. Then he vanished. Attendants on Flight 318 started seeing Captain Locke on their plane. One stewardess saw the captain standing in the aisle near the back of the plane. 
He turned around and looked at her with a smile, then faded away. The stewardess dropped in a faint. Another crewman said he heard the dead captain's voice come over the public address system, asking passengers to put on their seatbelts. Still, another saw Loft's ghost sitting in a passenger seat, staring out the window. Crew members were not the only ones seeing ghostly apparitions. On two separate occasions, passengers flagged down passing stewardesses to let them know that the man sitting next to them, the one dressed in the uniform of an Eastern Airlines flight officer, looked horribly pale and sat there without moving or speaking. On both occasions, the stewardesses duly checked the ill passenger and found nothing but an empty seat. And both startled passengers were shown photographs of Eastern staff that identified Don Repo as the sick-looking man in the empty seat next to them. Several caterers loading N-318EA for its next flight rushed off the plane and refused to get back on to finish their job. They had all seen a flight engineer in the galley who vanished in front of their eyes. The officials at Eastern Airlines were not at all pleased with the numbers of ghost stories being circulated around their planes. They threatened to fire any Eastern employee caught telling tales. This was a teensy bit hypocritical because the vice president of the company spoke with Captain Loth on a Miami-bound flight. As soon as he realized he was speaking with Loft, the ghost disappeared. But the stories continued to circulate. In 1974, an article about the haunted planes appeared in the newsletter of, of the U.S. Flight Safety Foundation, which was a further source of embarrassment for the company's top brass. But then, the spirits of Bob Loft and Don Repo changed their tactics just slightly. They had just been appearing to crew and passengers and sometimes scaring the pace out of them. But now, the Phantoms had a message for the living crew of the planes they haunted. Stewardess Faye Merriweather was working in the galley of Flight 903 on a jaunt from New York to Mexico. When she, when she saw... Hang on a second. When she saw the weird reflection in an oven window. The galley had been refitted on Flight... The galley had been refitted on Flight 903, and this was the same oven that had been on Flight 401. The reflection wavered, then resolved itself into a face, the face of Don Repo. The face seemed to be trying to speak. More fascinated than frightened, Meriwether quietly got two of her co-workers, another stewardess and engineer, to come to the galley with her. When the three got back, Don Repo's face was clearer than ever. The apparition's lips twitched, and the ghostly face spoke. Watch out for fire on this airplane, an eerie voice said in a hollow monotone. The flight arrived in Mexico City without incident, but the three crew members couldn't forget the ghostly warning. And on the return trip, they had reason to remember what morning to remember that warning. The plane was sitting on the runway in Mexico City preparing for takeoff when the starboard engine failed. The engine backfired several times, and the engineers quickly shut it down before it caught fire. It was Don Repo's spirit that appeared most often, always dressed in his Eastern Airlines uniform. He was usually seen sitting in in, in a plane's first-class section or in the crew area, and sometimes in the cockpit. The Phantom always appeared calm and relaxed, but very concerned about the plane's safety. Often, the ghost manifested to make suggestions or give warnings to the plane's crew, who only realized they were dealing with the paranormal when Repo vanished after talking with them. Both Loft and Repo seemed to be haunting the planes to which they were still connected because of the crash that killed them. Perhaps they felt responsible for the deaths of the 96 people who perished with them in that human mucky swamp. Their message was always one of protection and responsibility. They appeared on many occasions to warn crews about equipment malfunctions and impending danger. 
One captain was checking his instruments before a flight from Miami to Atlanta. Repo's face appeared, floating in the cockpit in front of the astonished pilot. There will never be another crash on L-1011, Repo assured the pilot. We won't. We will not let it happen. Eventually, all the parts that had been salvaged for Flight 401 were removed from the various planes that had received them. The spirits of Bob Loft and Don Repo were never seen again after that. Still, they kept their promise to protect Eastern's L-1011 fleet. The crash of Flight 401 on December 29, 1972 was the last fatal crash of the TriStar fleet. From 72 until Eastern Airlines folded in 91, there were no other crashes involving that fleet. The Indian Ocean Tsunami Thailand and Southeast Asia is a favorite vacation destination for people from all over the world. Thailand is known as the land of smiles for the legendary hospitality and politeness of its people. Buddhism is the major religion of the country, and Buddhist serenity seems ingrained in the people. Tourism companies describing a Thailand vacation promise something for everyone. Sophisticated metropolitan Bangkok has a big city energy, with markets and temples to explore. Northern Thailand is home to archaeological riches, including several world historical sites. Visitors can wander ancient temples and cities, peak and opulent royal palaces, and visit elephant camps in the majestic mountains to see the great beasts at work and at play. And in the south are Thailand's or, 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 Thailand's Thailand's sorry, <laughs> famous beach resorts. Tourists from across the world come to these luxury resorts to enjoy the pure white sand beaches and tropical islands dotting the blue green sea. It is beautiful there. But on December 26, 2004, this serene paradise became hell on earth. A massive undersea earthquake triggered a series of tsunamis that devastated Southeast Asia. The earthquake that caused the Indian Ocean tsunami was the third largest quake ever recorded, with an estimated magnitude of 9.1 on the Richter scale. It holds the record for the longest duration ever observed. The earthquake redistributed the continental shelf and changed the rotation of the Earth. The quake was so strong, it shortened the length of the Earth's day by about two microseconds. Think of an ice skater pulling her arms into Titan, the speed at which she spins. All of this caused incredible destruction. Waves 100 feet high slammed into the Indian Ocean coast, killing 230,000 people in 14 countries. 50,000 people were missing after the tsunami struck. They were later added to the list of presumed dead, bringing the toll to an estimated 280,000. It was the fifth deadliest natural disaster in history. This devastating tragedy led to many hauntings along Thailand's lovely beaches. They began almost immediately after the waves receded. A security guard quit his job after hearing the screams of a woman echoing in the night from the wreckage of a hotel that was particularly badly hit. ABC, Australia Broadcasting Company, reported that spook volunteers searching for bodies at the resort areas of Fifi Island, I hope I said that right, you guys, and Kaulak heard tourists singing and laughing on the beach. When they went to investigate, they found only darkness and empty sand. In Kaulak, a local family's telephone rang constantly in the days and nights following the tsunami. When they answered the phone, they could hear the voices of friends and relatives begging to be rescued from the flames of the crematorium. Many of these ghosts are foreigners. There's the story of a ghostly tourist who wanders up and down one of those beautiful beaches, calling mournfully for her lost child. Another tale tells of a foreign man and his Thai girlfriend who hailed a cab to take them to the airport, but disappeared during the ride. That was not the only report of vanishing passengers. The BBC aired 
an antidote told by told by a tuk-tuk driver who gave his name only as Lek. On January 6, 2005, seven foreign tourists climbed into his minivan late at night. After agreeing on a 200 baht fee, the tourists asked Lek to drive them to Kata Beach on the west coast of the island. A, a, a fuck it. Fuck it? Is it fuck it or fuck it? Okay. He drove for a while. Suddenly, he felt his body go curiously numb. He glanced in his rearview mirror and all seven of his passengers were gone. Many Thais are deeply superstitious. In addition to Buddhism, there's a certain degree of nature worship going on too. Many Thais believe most large trees are home to ghosts, and every home has a spirit house or altar where offerings of food and drink are made daily to pacify any supernatural entities who may be nearby. Fish sellers and seafood restaurants along the West Coast saw, saw a large drop in business from the locals after the tsunami. Many Thais were refusing to eat fish, fearing that ocean creatures had been nibbling on human corpses that had been swept out to sea. Almost 95% of Thailand's population is Buddhist, and they believe in reincarnation, regardless of religion. Each time a person dies, their spirit spends some unspecified amount of time as a ghost, self-aware and seeking rebirth. Buddhist monks chant prayers to the dead, urging them to stop wandering the places where they died so the living can be left in peace and the dead can be reborn. An interesting facet of these ghost stories is that nearly all the ghosts roaming Thailand's beaches and resorts after the tsunami were foreign, and Asians were utterly terrified of them. In the years after the disaster, tourism from Europe, Australia, and the United States rebounded pretty quickly. But the number of tourists coming to Thailand from Asia, from Asia plummeted. Psychologist Wanlop <laughs> Wanlop Excuse me, Pia Manutham. Okay, you got it. Pia Manutham. Explain. I'm sorry. This is in an interview with BBC News. Foreigners make a big impression on Thais, the doctor said. They're physically imposing and often seem rich and powerful. If people like that die in terrible circumstances, it's not surprising they should come back in people's minds as ghosts, especially when they have so far to go to get home. The Buddhist monks of Thailand have figured out a way to help these lost foreign souls move on to their next life. In addition to burning offerings of paper clothes and symbolic money to appropriate these spirits, the monks added another offering, one that was sure to appeal to foreign tourists trapped in a strange land. Pizza. Now, wouldn't that make you feel better? Tis the season creeping up on Christmas. It's just as easy to find ghosts on Dece in December as it is in any other month of the year. They're always out there, waiting for us to notice them. A flash flood. The middle years of the 19th century were a time of great social advances and great optimism. Social reforms were the order of the day, and many people felt they could change the world for the better through their ideas. It was not only in New England, cradle of the young nation, that these changes were taking place. Even in the Midwest, at that time, still considered the wild frontier, social reformers sought to spread their ideas. Judge Wave Loofborough purchased a thousand acres of land bordering the Ohio River in Claremont County, and in 1844, he founded a village he called simply Utopia. Loofborough and his followers were supporters of, of the philosophy of a Frenchman named Charles Fourier. Fourier envisioned a society based on agriculture far removed from the evils of mechanization, where people would live and work together. 
work would be assigned to people according to their natural inclinations and abilities. In short, he envisioned a commune where every person's needs would be provided for and where people would help one another. Loofborough and his group were eager to try out this social experiment for themselves. They built a two-story brick building with 30 rooms for everyone to live in. Unfortunately, communal living is not always the easiest way to run a society. And within two years, it became obvious that the community was not going to be a viable option. In 1846, Loofborough, seeking a way to make at least some of his investment back, sold the land and house to John O. Waters, the leader of a group of 100 spiritualists. The spiritualists, too, were seeking a better way to perfect society. Spiritualism was intensely popular during the mid-19th century, gaining even more followers during and after the Civil War. Spiritualists believe that human beings don't really die. Although physical bodies might decay, the spirit lives on in the afterlife. Spiritualists sought to communicate with the, shade, with the shades of the deceased with the help of mediums. The souls of the dead, they believed, could speak with those they left behind through many avenues such as manifestations, written messages, spirit photography, trance speaking, automatic writing, even music. Waddles was a medium, blessed with the ability to converse with the spirits. He was not, however, a builder. When the spiritualists bought the house that, that Loofborough's group had built, they decided for some reason not to leave it where it was. Instead, they moved it closer to the river, adding a basement and a third story. The housewarming party for the reconstructed building and the spiritualist grand experiment was planned for December 13, 1847. The house was filled with people, all gathered to mark the beginning of a new adventure. For most of the partygoers, though, it was not the beginning, but the end. As people mingled and chatted, sipping cups of punch, no one suspected the insidious danger that stalked the new building drawing ever closer. Eventually, though, Someone noticed that water was trickling across the floor in a slow but steady stream. Suddenly, the trickle became a torrent. Water from the Ohio River pushed its unstoppable way through the house, flooding everything in its path. It has been said that only six people survived the calamity. The house is still home to several spirits, according to reports going back to the early 20th century. The spirits, including a lady in a blue dress and bonnet, always appear soaking wet. Families have lived in the Wilds house, since 1917. A second floor bedroom is believed to have been John Waddle's room, as many people report having a peculiar experience there. People say they feel an unnatural sense of drowsiness there, almost like a trance state. In this twilight doze, people say they experience a vision of six travelers coming up a dirt road, entering the Waddle's house, and waking up and walking up the staircase to the bedroom. As they come closer to the room, the vision fades away. The woman in blue is invariably a part of the group in the vision. Witnesses sometimes see her accompanied by a young boy and a man in Amish-style clothing. And if this bedroom was once indeed used by John Waddles, these witnesses might be experiencing a hint of the trance state used by that long-ago spiritualist when he communicated with phantoms in his own home. Richard Crawford, a historian and writer who has made the study of the Waddles house his passion, described an odd experience he had at the house. He was there with a film crew to shoot an annual Halloween show. Quote, the owner's daughter, says Crawford, who couldn't have been more than three or four years old, just started jumping up and down, saying she wanted to be on television. End quote. Understandable behavior for an excitable little kid. The girl's mother shushed her, shushed her, telling her she had to stay out of the way and leave the film crew alone while they were working. 
Of course. You can tell a kid a hundred times to stay out from underfoot. But making sure she does she does it is another thing entirely. Filming was delayed several times because of the girls' interruptions. The mother insisted that the crew keep quiet about the ghost stories associated with the home. She didn't want her kid freaked out by the thought of ghosts. Finally, the crew was finished shooting and ready to wrap. They were in John Waddle's bedroom when the door burst open and the little girl came barreling into the room yet again. The mother, exasperated, asked the girl what she wanted. Crawford says that the girl asked her mother if she remembered what had happened just a couple of nights earlier. The mother recalled aloud that she had been baking and had asked the girl to stop bothering her. The girl nodded in agreement and according to Crawford's recollection said, yes, and I didn't, and I didn't bug you anymore. I didn't even let the people who came to the door into the house. There were, there were six people outside and there was a lady in, blue, in a blue dress with a blue bonnet and they were all wet. Mother and film crew sat stunned. The girl's mother had been vigilant about shielding her young daughter from the unsettling stories of the house's history. But, all on her own, the girl had just described the apparitions people had been seeing for years, down to the smallest detail. They say children are more, more receptive to seeing spirits, simply because they haven't yet learned that they can't. It seems the little girl was picking up on the psychic echo of the long-ago tragedy. The Haunting of Hunley House The morning of December 12, 1928, dawned bright and brisk in Carbondale, Illinois. Before midnight that evening, the town would be rocked with the news of a horrific double murder. One of the victims was John, Star John Charles Hunley, who had been mayor of Carbondale in 1907 and 1908. He was a wealthy, well-respected businessman who had many friends and business associates in the area. Also dead was Hunley's second wife, Luella. Although he had the respect of his peers, John Hunley had made some mistakes in his life. In 1893, he had killed a man. Hunley had murdered a music teacher, but was acquitted by the jury after he explained his reason. The man had been sleeping with Hunley's wife. By invoking the unwritten law, Hunley gained the sympathy of the husbands and brothers sitting in the jury box. After this incident, Hunley divorced his unfaithful wife. This caused a family rift between Hunley and his son, Victor. The spat had supposedly been smoothed over years before John's murder, but there were those in town who hadn't forgotten the bitter feelings between father and son. Hunley remarried a few years after his divorce, choosing Luella Harrison as his new bride. Luella herself came from a business-minded family. Her father was Ruffin Harrison, one of the founders of the town of Heron, Illinois, and the owner of numerous coal mines in the region and she was sister to George Harrison, president of Heron's First National Bank. In 1915, John and Luella Hunley bought a lot at the corner of Main and Maple Streets and built a lavish, luxurious home for themselves. John was the model of a Gilded Age tycoon. Partnering with his son Victor, the younger Hunley's, the younger Hunley's Coles business, Luella... Okay, sorry, sorry about that. Partnering with his son Victor in the younger Hunley's coal business, Luella, as befitting the wife of an upper-class businessman, was very active in charity work and was an accomplished musician besides. Luella in particular was regarded as having no enemies, which made her murder even more shocking. A family friend, Joab Goodall, visited the Hunleys on the evening of Wednesday, December 12th. The Hunleys were planning a motor trip to their winter home in Florida, and they were looking forward with high spirits 
to their departure on Sunday. Goodall left the house around 8 p.m., and Luella locked the back door behind him. Just before midnight, Olga Casper, the Hunley's next-door neighbor, heard several pistol shots ring out into the night. Peering out her window, she saw the lights in the Hunley house go out. Later, she heard someone running past her house, coming from the Hunley's home and heading towards, the, towards Victor's house, just 200 yards away. In response to phone calls from the neighbors, police were on the scene in minutes. The investigation determined that John Hunley was murdered first. His body was found in an upstairs bedroom dressed only in a nightshirt and socks. He had been shot from behind, six times with a 45 caliber revolver. Luella Hunley had been killed, it seemed, on a rear stairway, attacked as she went to investigate the earlier shots. She had been shot twice in the head and once in the heart. From the stairs, her body had rolled into the kitchen. A pencil lay on the floor next to her left hand, and an unfinished letter was still sitting on the table in the next room. Luella's was a life suddenly interrupted. At first, Chief of Police Joe Montgomery told the press that robbery seemed to be the motive for the murders. However, there was only the slimmest evidence for this theory, an empty pocketbook on the floor near Luella's body. Other than that, nothing, and the house was disturbed. Not the valuable artwork, not the expensive furnishings, and not the considerable amount of cash. The police quickly focused their investigation elsewhere. On the morning of December 13th, investigators thoroughly searched the Hunley house. They discovered that the back door that Joab Goodwill and Luella had locked behind them, him after his visit was unlocked at the time of the murders, with no sign of forced entry. That hinted strongly that the Hunleys knew their attacker. Perhaps Luella even got up from her letter writing to let him into the house. Tracking dogs were brought in and put on the trail to kill her. Four times, the dogs led their handlers straight to the home of Victor Hunley, John's son. This didn't look good for Victor. Even worse, investigators from the Jackson County Sheriff's Office searched the route between the two houses. Along the path, the investigators found several slips of paper that seemed to have been dropped unnoticed, perhaps as the killer fled the Hunley house. One paper, dated December 5th, was a notice of the termination of partnership of Mr. and Mrs. J.C. Hunley with Victor Hunley, dissolving their support of Victor's prominent coal business. Another paper was a blank deposit slip. On the back, a note in Luella's handwriting figured the interest on a loan in the amount of $532. At the top of the slip, also in Luella's handwriting, was the name Vic. All this was enough for the sheriff for Sheriff William Flanagan to bring Victor Hunley in for questioning. Things began to look even bleaker for Victor when investigators found a bloodstained khaki shirt during their search of his house. Victor claimed he'd been wearing the shirt when he'd been told of his father's and stepmother's murders. Police had come to his door, Victor said, and had woken him and asked him to come to the elder Hunley's house. He had picked up his stepmother's bodies while he was wearing the shirt, and that's where the blood had come from. Investigators encountered, with the, investigators countered with the fact that Victor hadn't touched the body. Victor immediately changed his story. He remembered suddenly that he'd been wearing the shirt while out hunting quail, and that's where the blood had come from. Sheriff Flanagan hammered on Victor for seven hours. Victor told investigators that on Wednesday night, the night of the murders, he'd been at home all evening, reading and playing with his son. He had gone to bed early, then he'd been awakened by the police. He admitted that he owned a 45 caliber revolver, but he claimed he had recently loaned it to his father. 
Police searched both houses for the gun but found nothing. To this day, the murder weapon has never been found. Ola Victor's protestations did not prove his innocence. He was put under house arrest as the investigation continued. At the inquest, Joab Goodall testified that John Hunley had recently told him that he planned to write up a new will. John planned to disinherit Victor because he was no good. If this was the case, Victor stood to lose a lot of money by being cut out of his father's will. John Hunley's estate was worth over $350,000, but Victor was faced with having to settle for just his trust fund, worth less than $15,000. Victor was arrested for the murders of John, John Charles and Luella Hunley on December 15th, immediately after their funerals. The state's attorney, Fletcher Lewis, felt sure he could prove Victor guilty in court. Incredibly, though, Lewis was wrong. In an amazing display of the accused being innocent until proven guilty, Lewis was forced to let Victor go free on December 31st. After the hearing, the disappointed prosecutor made a statement to the press. Quote, While the facts and circumstances learned from the investigation amply justified the holding of Victor Hunley and the filing of a complaint charging him with murder, I've decided to prosecute this case no further. End quote. As if washing down this as if washing down this bitter pill, Lewis added, I feel quite sure that the atrociousness of this crime will compel the conscience of the person who committed it to someday make public his guilt. But if Lewis was thought to shame Victor or anyone else into confessing to the double murder, it didn't work. The shooting of J.C. and Luella Hunley has never been solved. Maybe that's why the house in which they died still echoes with their presence. The mansion sat empty for two years after the murders, but the only physical evidence of the tragedy was, was a bullet hole in the wall near where Luella's body was found. But the community's memory was long, especially when it came to murder. In 1930, Edwin Volger Sir, Sir Sr. bought the mansion and its contents from the Hunley estate. In 1972, the house was sold to the Simmons family, who converted the mansion into a gift shop with apartments upstairs. Several of the past owners and tenants have reported oddities in the building. One resident heard the piano downstairs playing faintly by itself. Her family also heard footsteps going up and down the stairs. Former owner Victoria Spray felt that Luella's ghost followed her home from work at least once. Spray, I think it's Spray, ran the gift shop in the Hunley house for five years. One evening, as she let herself into her empty house, she noticed that the kitchen lights were on and she heard pots and pans clanging. She wasn't spooked by the industrious spirit, though. It was a very peaceful vibe. Spree's daughter, Nina, had her own odd experience with the ghost of the Hummel House. She and her husband both have seen the porch swing move by itself, even when there's no wind. Quote, I think Mr. and Mrs. Hummel still like to swing at night, she said. Seven. All right. Next, the messenger of Donner Pass. A trucker named Mark L. shared an eerie experience he had that stretched out over two Christmas seasons. In the late autumn of 1996, Mark's father had gone to a friend's house for a visit. As soon as he walked into the house, he clutched his chest, dropped to the floor, and died of a massive heart attack. The police called Mark and asked him to go take care of his mother. Mark rushed to his mother's side and made all the necessary phone calls. As evening faded into night, family began to gather at the house. Mark needed to go out for cigarettes. So, knowing his mother now had the comfort of family around her, 
he left the house for a quick trip to the gas station. As he pulled in the gas station parking lot, Mark said he just had the strange feeling that his father's soul just wasn't where it should be. He couldn't explain the feeling, even to himself. Mark got out of the car and started to walk to the convenience store. Spare some change, mister? Could I maybe wash your windshield for you? The bum looked harmless enough, but Mark wasn't in the mood for much interaction. Instead, he pulled out a $5 bill, gave it to the guy, and asked him to pray for his dad. The bum happily took the fiver and started praying, loudly. Just to make sure things were copacetic, Mark gave the guy a good hard look. It was then that he noticed the bum's eyes were a penetrating shade of blue, so piercing blue they could stop you in your tracks. Mark thanked the guy for his prayers and asked him for his name. The bum replied, I'm Irish. Shaking his head, Mark went into the convenience store, bought his cigarettes, and headed home. Several months passed. The encounter with the bum stuck in Mark's mind, and every time he went to that gas station, he kept an eye out for the guy. A few years later, Mark saw the man again. Mark asked the guy if he remembered him and if his name was Irish. Yeah, I'm Irish, but no, I don't remember you. Mark realized with a jolt that the guy's eyes were brown, so deep they were almost black. They were not the startling blue Mark had seen the night his father had passed away. But that was only part of Mark's story. Much of Mark's driving took place on Interstate 80 in all kinds of weather. Mark grew up in California, so he didn't have much experience with driving in snow and ice. Once, though, he was teamed with another driver who managed to jackknife the truck during a blizzard in Kansas. After that, Mark had a healthy respect for driving in winter conditions. Christmas was fast approaching, and Mark was doing short hops from Chicago to California, making his way home for Christmas. On December 23rd, he pulled into the Alamo truck stop for a break. Donner Pass was before him. Mark was toying with the idea of trying to get a little sleep before tackling the pass, but he was so exhausted. He knew an hour nap might turn into eight hours of solid sleep. A storm was blowing in, and Mark still wasn't sure what his next move should be. He climbed down from the cab of his truck and headed into use of the restroom. Mark was walking about ten feet behind a group of other drivers when one of them turned around and spoke to him. If you're trying to get home, you better go over the pass right now. Mark didn't know this guy and had never talked to him, but the man had the same brilliant blue eyes Mark had seen the, the night of his father's death. Mark turned on his heel and went straight back to his truck. He gunned the engine and headed up Donner Pass. The CB crackled with incoming weather reports as Mark drove. He made it all the way through the pass and stopped at a rest area when he was safely through the mountains. As Mark pulled out of the rest area, the snow was falling thickly, and he heard over the radio that Donner Pass had been shut down, and it stayed closed for a day and a half. He had made it through the pass just in time. If Mark hadn't followed that unknown trucker's advice, he'd have been stuck at the truck stop over Christmas. As it was, he made it safely home to Los Angeles after delivering his final load. Quote, my mother had a smile for the first time on Christmas since my father had passed away Christmas before. Mark had never seen anyone with blue eyes quite like that again, but he is always on the lookout for them. To this day, if I see piercing blue eyes like that, I listen to the words being spoken. House of Plenty Madison County, Illinois, in the southern part of the state, is a quiet rural area. In 1879, Timothy Groves built a home for himself in the town of Highland. A hundred years later, in the early 1980s, 
Ken and Judy Ernst rented part of the house for use as a small bakery. Within a decade, Judy's baked goods business had become so popular the couple bought the entire house. For a while, they lived in the house and ran a small restaurant business. But by the end of the 1980s, the restaurant had grown to fill the entire building and the couple made their home elsewhere. The House of Plenty restaurant is thought to be haunted by the spirit of the original owner, Timothy Grouse. The story goes that Grouse hosted a party in his home in honor of the town's early Swiss settlers who were planning a trip back to Switzerland to visit their families. The plans for a joyful reunion turned into tragedy. The ship carrying the travelers sank, claiming the lives of over 300 passengers. According to Chad Lewis, writing in the Illinois Road Guide to Haunted Locations, and he's been a guest on the show, some people believe that after losing so many of his friends in the sinking, Timothy Grouse continues to wait for their return. The restaurant building is notorious for having things mysteriously go missing. One day, Judy Ernst was in the kitchen baking an angel food cake. She left it on the counter to cool. Several hours later, she came back to find that the cake had vanished. Neither the cake nor the pan was ever found. Well, you might be thinking to yourself, a missing cake, that's not so bad. Someone left an angel food cake unattended. If someone left an angel food cake unattended in my house for several hours, of course it would be gone. But try this on for size. Someone who had once lived in the home stopped by for a visit. She asked Judy if she never had anything go missing, and Judy mentioned the story of the cake and the pan. As she spoke, the visitor's face blanched a ghostly white. Then the visitor shared a story of her own. Years before, her mother had been boiling potatoes on the stove in that same kitchen. Her husband had come home, and Mama went into the living room to greet them. She gave him a quick kiss, then came immediately back to the kitchen to check on the food. The mother was stunned to discover on her return that the pot of boiling potatoes had vanished into thin air. The dining room of the restaurant in the scene is this, I'm sorry. The dining room of the restaurant is, is the scene of a strange phenomenon that happens every Christmas. There is a fireplace in the dining room, with several tables for guests dining arranged near the hearth. Every year around Christmas, Ken Ernst would notice a small pile of charred pipe tobacco on the corner of one of the tables. How it got there was a mystery, until a former occupant of the home brought in an old photograph of the Grouse family, the home's original owners. Standing in the photograph was a young man who was smoking a pipe. He was identified as Grouse's son, and it is believed that he liked to spend his winter evenings in that very room, smoking a pipe while sitting next to the fireplace. The House of Plenty is now closed, and, in, and, and the good smells of home-cooked food no longer fill the air. However, as Christmas approaches, maybe the scent of good pipe tobacco still lingers in the dining room, and Timothy Grouse's pipe, and Timothy Grouse's pipe-loving son still knocks his his spit ash onto a handy table near the fireplace. The USS Constellation. After America won independence from England, the new young nation had miles upon miles of coastline to protect. Ships were built to form America's first navy. One of these ships was the USS Constellation, 175 feet long, with three main masts. She was launched at Harris Creek, Maryland on September 7, 1797, as a 36-gun frigate. Her first captain was Thomas Truxton, and he started the ship's bloody career with a bang, quite literally. On February 5, 1799, the Constellation got into a battle with the French frigate. I can't even say the word. I'm not going to try. With a French frigate. 
in the West Indies. The French ship was captured, but in the heat and terror of the battle, a sailor named Neil Harvey deserted his post. Truxton found out and ordered Lieutenant Sterrett to run Harvey through with his sword. After the battle, Harvey, wounded but still alive, was tied to the end of a cannon and blown to pieces on Truxton's orders as a warning to the other sailors not to slack off on duty. Not surprisingly, Harvey's ghost is one of the most frequently seen on the ship. He's even been mistaken for a costume tour guide. The Constellation saw many missions throughout her long service in the United States Navy. She provided support for land troops fighting Seminole Indians and distinguished herself in the War of 1812. She tussled with slave traders and Barbary pirates and sailed as far as West Africa, China, and Hawaii. In 1845, the ship sailed to the Navy Yard in, in Norfolk, Virginia for a complete overhaul. She had been given a new stern in 1829-1830, and the hull of a wooden ship needed to be rebuilt every 16 years or so anyway. We don't know how much of the original ship's material was left after the 1845-55 rebuild, but it was enough to keep the ghosts hanging around. The Constellation's rebuild was finished in 1855. The ship was downgraded from a 36-gun frigate to a 22-gun sloop. The Constellation was the last ship of the United States Navy to be powered completely by sail. The Navy was moving, in, the Navy was moving towards steam power. In 1893, the ship docked at the Naval Station at Newport, Rhode Island, and served as a stationary training ship until 1914. Then it sat neglected for decades. In 1940, Franklin D. Roosevelt recommissioned her as a flagship of the United States Atlantic Fleet. When the money for that project dried up, the ship was towed to Boston. In 1953, a group of historically-minded Maryland citizens raised funds to bring the Constellation home to Baltimore. By September 55, the ship had come to her final home. And that's when the ghost stories began. Several ships, including the submarine Pike, were moored nearby. Their sailors told tales of strangeness on the constellation, odd noises, spook lights, ghostly shapes, and misty figures walking on her decks. By December 1955, Lieutenant Commander Alan Ross Brom had heard many of the stories. He decided the situation warranted an investigation. He called up a friend of his who was a photographer and invited him to bring his camera on board. They set up the camera facing the ship's wheel. Then they waited. At exactly 11.59.47 p.m. on that cold December night, Brome smelled the faint odor of something like gunpowder. Immediately after that, he saw the translucent bluish-white phantom of a 19th century U.S. Navy captain. The phantasm wore gold opulets and a cocked hat and was slightly bent at the waist, reaching down with its, with its right hand as if to draw a sword. At the click of the camera's shutter, the ghost vanished, but Brom had his picture. Many witnesses to the spirits of the ship report smelling gunpowder in the air just before the, appari the apparitions manifest. Captain Truxton especially announces his impending presence with the acrid tang of gunpowder, and all the constellation spirits seem to be most active around midnight, especially in the week between Christmas and New Year's Day. There are several ghosts on board to keep Captain Truxton and Neil Harvey company. An 11-year-old boy served on the ship from 1820 to 1822 as a surgeon's assistant. In 1822, he was cornered by two sailors on the Orlop deck and stabbed to death. No one knows why. Another sailor, overwhelmed by the harsh life at sea, hanged himself. Then there is the spirit of Carl Hansen, night watchman, 
who worked on the constellation in the mid-20th century until an alarm system was installed. Hansen is the only spirit on the ship who didn't die a violent death, and is believed to haunt the ship because he actually is happy to be there. His ghost has been seen enjoying a game of cards on the lower decks. In 1964, a Catholic priest came aboard for a tour. No one from the Maryland Naval Militia was around at the time, so he went below decks on his own. He was met by a guy who seemed very knowledgeable about the inner workings and terminology of the ship. After the informative tour, the priest thanked the guide and headed for the exit. As he was leaving the ship, he ran into the other guides. He complimented them on finding such an enthusiastic volunteer. The guides exchanged nervous glances. There's no one below right now, one said. The men all rushed down to find the intruder, but there was no one there. The constellation it rests now in Baltimore Harbor is a prized artifact of American history, and apparently some of her crew are still celebrating the holidays late at night, walking the decks of the grand ship. Lord Combermere Returns The second Lord Combermere had a favorite chair in the library at his grand estate, Combermere Abbey. He was so fond of the spot that he was photographed sitting comfortably in that chair while his funeral was being held four miles away. There were two Viscounts that held the title of Lord Combermere in the 19th century. The first Viscount was a cavalry commander in the early 1800s. In 1817, he was appointed governor of Barbados. It was this Lord Combermere I'm sorry, that had a curious connection to the supernatural. He was governor at the time that moving coffins were causing great consternation for the Chase family. The Chase family vault was a beautiful crypt in the burying ground at Christ Church Parish in Barbados. Made of coral, carved stone, and concrete walls two feet thick, it was sealed with a massive slab of blue marble. The vault was impenetrable. That's, what it was, that's why it was such a shock to find that the coffins that had been placed reverently in the tomb were found to have been rearranged with violent force. Whenever the vault was opened for another burial, the coffins of Chase family members were found thrown haphazardly around the vault instead of remaining where they'd been placed and replaced with tender care. Lord Combermere, the governor, had heard the unsettling stories and decided to put a stop to the nonsense. He ordered the vault opened. He had slaves sprinkle sand on the floor to capture the footprints of any intruders, human or animal. Then, when the vault was closed, he pressed his governor's seal into the fresh cement. Two years later, he returned to inspect the vault. The outside of the tomb was as rock-solid as ever, but inside all was chaos. The six coffins had been tossed about like toys, and the sand on the floor was completely undisturbed. The second Viscount, born in 1818, went by the splendid name of Wellington Henry Stapleton Cotton. In 1891, when this gentleman was visiting London, he was run over by a carriage and suffered injuries to both legs. The sturdy 73-year-old recovered well, and six weeks later, he was able to get around with the aid of crutches. But a blood clot de developed in Lord Combermere's heart, and on December 1st, 1891, he dropped dead. The Lord's funeral was held on Sunday, December 5th at St. Margaret's in the town of, of Renbury, four miles from the family estate. Many prominent persons attended the funeral, so the time of the services was held back a bit to give the honored mourners ample time to arrive. The services began at two in the afternoon. It just so happened that a photographer, Sybil R. Corbett, had been engaged to take pictures of the family estate. Lord Combermere's funeral, while unfortunate, 
was serendipitously timed, since most of the household would be away at the church. Corbett set up an hour-long exposure in the library, confident that no one would wander in and disturb the ongoing photography project. Other projects came along, and Corbett, and Corbett developed the plates she'd taken of the Combermere Abbey until Oh, Corbett didn't develop. I'm sorry, Corbett didn't develop the plates she'd taken at Combermere Abbey until August of the next year, eight months after she'd exposed them. To her astonishment, the photograph she took in the library showed a white, translucent figure in the left side of the picture, sitting in Lord Combermere's favorite chair. The apparition wasn't complete. There was a head sitting atop a clearly defined collar, a shoulder, and a right arm ending in a hand that rested lightly on the arm of the chair. Cybelle Corbett checked her diary. Sure enough, the photograph had been taken on December 5th, the day of Lord Combermere's funeral. She did some further investigating with the family and realized that the exposure had been made at 2 p.m., at the same time that the late funeral was being conducted. Skeptics argue that perhaps the servant, a servant, had come into the library during the hour-long exposure, sat in the Lord's chair just long enough to register on the photograph plate, then gotten up and left. But the family had agreed that the timing for the photography was, sadly, ideal, as most of the family and staff of the household would be at the church for the funeral. Besides, the ghostly figure in the picture seemed to have a bald head and a light beard. According to Corbett's diary, the only men in the house at the time were her brother, the butler, and two footmen. All four men were young and beardless. So it would seem that Lord Combermere, Lord Combermere returned to his library for one last rest in his favorite armchair before going to an even more final rest. All right. That is it. We I'm going to continue with this. Hang on a second. Yeah. I'm going to continue with this on Sunday. But I hope you guys enjoyed the read. Kind of like a kind of like a cool down after work, right? You know, just to do that. You know what I need, guys, is eggnog. I'm, I'm having like an eggnog withdrawal. Eggnog withdrawal symptoms right now. Anyway, I want to thank you guys for coming tonight. Um, yeah, I, I love reading uh, this book. This book is interesting. You know, it goes it goes through everything. You know, you get the ghost stories, you get the disasters, you get every little thing. And some, some of the stories are kind of nice, too. So, you know, we're going to be reading those as we continue with the book. Uh, if you like what you hear tonight and you enjoy being read to, that this happens every Sunday from 6.30 to 7.30, um, and, uh, yeah, we do this and we do this every Sunday. It's not only Christmas time. This is, this is just for Christmas. And then after this book falling, we're going to go back to the Salem witch trials. And then we're going to be doing another book written by Anna Maria Manalo, which is kind of cool. So it'd be kind of nice. So we're lined up with books for the next few months, but if you like what you hear, please be sure to hit that like, excuse me. And you're watching from Facebook, please be sure to hit that like and follow button. If you're watching from YouTube, please, uh, Click on that little ghost in the bottom right-hand corner and uh, subscribe because we do have more than 450 videos sitting over there. All right. And if you uh, want to follow me in any other places, I'm over on Instagram as GhostyGal, all lowercase. And I'm also over at TikTok, and we are California Haunts, which is all lowercase. And we're on Twitter, and it's under CalHaunts. All right. Anyway, I want to thank you all for coming tonight. And tomorrow, tomorrow is uh, Casual Friday with uh, Medium Nancy Mass. And here's what's going on. And I might just drop a little hint here. We're either going to get a nice talk about uh, talking to dead people or she's going to do some on-the-spot readings. So that's for you to find out. You're going to have to come and find out what she's going to do. But here's a hint. If I were you, 
I would so I would sit down tonight and decide what I would like a reading on, like one question. Okay, that's my hint to you guys. So yeah, so it could happen, it could not happen. But I'm just saying that's my little that's my little hint, my little Christmas present hint to you guys, is that. So anyway, I am going to be quiet and uh, be sure to visit us at youtube.com forward slash at sign California Haunts Radio over there. Uh, visit our website at CaliforniaHauntsRadio.com. And you see that ticker at the bottom, and that's because we do not take any money to investigate, nor do we take any money to produce the show. However, it all comes all out of my pocket. So if something breaks, like my tablet or something like that, I have to pay, you know, I have to pay to have it fixed and all that good stuff. So uh, we can use a little help. I want to keep these shows going and keep the guests coming and all that good stuff. So if you could help me out a little bit, it doesn't have to be a lot. To help me do that, you know, pay for the internet costs and the electricity and stuff to keep this going, I'd appreciate it. You can do that at paypal.me at California Haunts. Or if you're uncomfortable with global PayPal and you prefer Venmo, just go to Venmo and type in California Haunts. But I would really appreciate it. It helps me pay the bills and keeps things going. Um, I do this full time now. So, yeah. All right. Anyway, I will see you tomorrow at 6.30 p.m. with Medium Nancy Matz. You guys have a good rest of the evening.